This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Mark Rotella and I'm Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly and we're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Naomi Jackson discusses her new book, The Star Side of Bird Hill. Then our very own Rose Fox recaps the Romance Writers of America conference. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list powered by Nielsen Bookscan. So what's on uh, the hardcover nonfiction list? <laughs> well, number one is a YouTube sensation, Miranda Sings. And her uh, book is called Self Health. Uh, <laughs> Self Health. Uh, number one. Uh, 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 she's, she's attracted millions of, of watchers on YouTube channels. So uh, she's kind of this uh, bumbling, I, I, ironically talentless, self-absorbed personality, according to her, her own bio. And here She's uh, putting together uh, advice uh, in this easy-to-follow guide, tongue-in-cheek, of course. So uh, it's at number one. And again, it's That a sounds YouTube like a blast. Simple. Yeah, exactly. So number 11 was one of my uh, picks for the summer, one of my favorite books of the year. William Finnegan, New Yorker writer, uh, his book called uh, Barbarian Days, A Surfing Life. It's been getting lots and lots of publicity everywhere. Here he talks about his life surfing. He grew up in California, moved to Hawaii when he was uh, 13 with his family, who was a, uh, his father was a surfer. Uh, screenwriter. And uh, here he talks about just traipsing the world, surfing, finding surfing hot spots, and with a friend of his reading, like trying to find old New Yorkers, which they would read while they were surfing. And this wow. is well before he became a New Yorker. But it's been getting great reviews. And this is this has really been one of my favorite books of the year. So I'm really glad to see it there. Number 16, there's just no end to wrestling and mixed martial arts. This one is by Daniel uh, Bryan. Yes, exclamation point. My improbable journey to the main event of WrestleMania. Uh, he's one of the uh, WWE's uh, you know, champions. And uh, he's he's gone on to talk about it and um, kind of gives us behind the scenes look. Uh, I did not know that that was a big thing in nonfiction. I get all these romance novels featuring hunky guys who do mixed martial arts mostly. Okay. Wrestling. I haven't seen a wrestling romance yet, but I'm sure it's mixed martial arts. Not not far behind, but yeah. Oh like, my gosh! It's like MMA good. romance is their own whole genre now because you know they're like bad boys. Right. And they're exactly. Super muscular. And, exactly. It's a little yeah. bit of living life on the rough on the on the rough side of town a little bit. But I didn't know that there were also yeah. uh, a lot of nonfiction yeah. books about it. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. A lot of memoirs. Yeah, it's a hu- yes, exactly. Quite a few every, uh, I mean, every season I've been seeing them. Huh. Uh, finally, at number 28, Macy Bookout called Bulletproof is the book. Um, Macy Bookout is a, uh, was a schoolgirl in Chattanooga, Tennessee, mo- best known for her role in the MTV series Teen Mom. And here she talks about her life, much older now, and, um, and that's at number 28. So All right. memoir, memoir jokey memoir and 
memoir. <laughs> I, I guess it's just that uh, that time of year when we want to listen to people talk about themselves because yes. it's too hot to, it's too hot do, to do anything, anything else. else. <laughs> Except maybe read some thrillers and mysteries. So, oh, perfect. Uh, you know, in, in fiction, of course, uh, there is no new number one and they're probably won't be for quite some time. Go set a watchman is just going to yeah. sit there and hug the spotlight. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, the girl on the train is right below it. Those two are just going to be chilling right, at right. the top for quite some time, I think. Um, so we got to look a little bit lower at number eight is speaking in bones by Kathy Reichs. Uh, this is the 18th novel featuring forensic anthropologist, temperance Brennan forensic anthropology is so interesting to me. Uh, you know, she, she really, uh, digs into the concept of uh, figuring out what happened in the past based on you know, some forensic techniques and right. also on uh, using those same techniques to address crimes in the present. Um, and uh, so there's some lab, some bones in a lab and uh, different theories about whose bones they are. Right. And uh, Temperance has to solve the case. Uh, we say it's a very, it's a solid novel and uh, that there's some welcome, welcome romantic interest slowly being added to this oh, multi-layered series. And so that's at number eight. And then down at number 22, the new Alexander McCall Smith, The Novel Habits of Happiness. Mm -hmm. And uh, these are you know, another episodic novel featuring Isabel Dalhousie. And uh, we gave it a starred review, said no writer makes the philosophical life as inviting and cozy as Smith does. Um, and, that, you know, he adds a modicum of narrative energy with a subplot. But plot isn't the point. I mean, I can you know, tell you... A, what's going on in the book but that's not really the the center mm -hmm. of it uh, the real substance of this charming series as our review says lies in isabel's thoughtful observations and the interactions among a large cast of characters okay. so uh, that one's on the list at number 22 and it's um you know i think probably going to stick around for a little bit um, and then finally, I just wanted to go down a little bit further to Ghost Fleet at mm -hmm. number 35. Uh, this is, a, it's called A Novel of the Next World War. It's a near future uh, sort of science fictional thriller right. novel. We say in our review that uh, Tom Clancy fans will relish this first novel from P.W. Singer and August Cole. Uh, it's a chilling vision of what might happen in a world war launched by a Chinese sneak attack on American satellites, uh, our uh, eyes and brains in outer space. Oh, wow. Uh, and so uh, they're in this vision of the future, the global economy crashes, uh, workers riot in China, and uh, the military ousts the communist leaders, clearing the way for a new government. So anything could happen. Uh, and when the Chinese decide to strike against the Americans, the Americans fight back. And uh, our review notes that there are uh, detailed endnotes documenting the real-world technologies and trends behind the book that make this fiction seem very plausible. Oh, that's, pretty, that's actually pretty pretty cool. Yeah, it sounds yeah. very interesting. So yeah. uh, that's one of those interesting places where thriller and science fiction really cross over hey. each other. And uh, that's on the list at number 35. Well, wonderful. And... Um, that's what I've got on the on the fiction side. It's a little bit of a slow week. Uh, yes. Maybe everyone just decided to sit back and let Harper Lee do her thing. Right, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I, but it'd be, it'd be pretty tough to be a fiction writer coming up with like a great best-selling book that just doesn't have that and just kind of keeps you off that number one yeah, spot. Yeah, it's, it's, like it's tough. But, you yeah. know, 
um, we we all we all make allowances yeah, for right, these right. things, and uh, being anywhere on the bestseller list is really an achievement. Pretty greatness, so true. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Naomi Jackson tells us about connections between New York and Barbados. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Naomi Barron, author of Words on Screen, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Naomi Jackson here with us. Her new book is The Star Side of Bird Hill. Hello, Naomi. So glad you could join us. Hey, Mark and Rose. Hi. It's really nice to have you here. So tell us a little bit about your novel. Our review called it A Bittersweet Coming-of-Age Tale. Yeah, so it's a complex coming-of-age story set in Barbados. It's about two sisters, uh, Phaedra, who's 10 when the novel opens, and Dion, who's 16, and their grandmother, Hyacinth, who's in her early 60s, who takes them in over the summer that they spend in Barbados. Um, So it charts the story of these girls as they go from thinking, we're just going to hang out with Granny for a couple months, to realizing that they're going to face their future at home in Barbados, which they originally never considered home. They were Brooklyn girls with some Barbadian ancestry. And so this idea of going back to a place that they feel some connection to, um, but have not never spent large amounts of time in is really confusing and frustrating for them alternately. So tell us how the situation came about and tell us a little bit about the, uh, uh, each of these girls, the two sisters. So I, I like to say that um, the joy of writing this novel is to have the snark of a teenager and the sunshine <laughs> of a young person. Um, so Phaedra's 10 and really full of a lot of awe and wonder about her newfound community in Barbados. She loves hanging out with her granny. She attends like one of her, the bursts that her grandmother um, midwives um, very early on in the book. So she's really excited about being there, whereas Barbados is a real place of struggle and tension for Dion. Um, She's 16 and therefore angsty. Um, And the thing that's most frustrating to her, I think, is this feeling of having been dumped on her grandmother um, and her hopes for herself, for her summer, for her birthday, all have been dashed by being ripped from Brooklyn. Um, So she had all kinds of ideas about what she was going to be doing. She was going to be working at a sneaker store in Brooklyn. She was going to go hang out with her boyfriend in Brooklyn. Um, And being sent home really frustrates her and rips her away from all of those plans. So um, it's interesting the way you use home in this. It sounds like there are a lot of different concepts of home. And we don't often see immigration stories where people are leaving America. You know, there are all these coming to America, land of opportunity stories. This is really different. So why did you take this approach? Yeah, so I think that there's so many coming of age and coming to America stories about young immigrant kids. And I wanted to reverse that story because I felt like my experience, um, the reason why I even think of both Brooklyn and several places in the Caribbean where my parents are from as home is because I spent so much time between those places. Um, so my parents sent us away for the summers, like as soon as school ended, um, we'd be on a plane and we'd come back around Labor Day. Um, and that's an experience that a lot of Caribbean kids have both in, um, London and New York and Toronto, all these places where there are Caribbean diaspora 
diaspora. So I felt that this was a part of Caribbean experience that had not actually been explored that much. Juno Diaz actually talks about it a little bit um, in Drown. Um, Some of the early stories in Drown look at his brother Rafa and him in the Dominican Republic. But even then, those are kids who are from the Dominican Republic and then Mm -hmm. moving to to the States. Um, So I just felt that this experience of being Caribbean but not Caribbean enough um, was one that really defined my life as a child and defined a lot of other young people's lives. And I wanted to write my way into that and also write my way into the what if question. Like, what if my parents sent us to Barbados and never brought us back? Um, So this was a safe way to explore some of the scarier um, answers to that question. I was going to say that sounds terrifying. It is. Well, can you tell us a little bit about the circumstances, uh, a little bit more about the circumstances that brought them there? Yeah, so their mother, um, it's the summer of 1989. Their mother, Avril, is a nurse. Um, She works at Kings County Hospital in Flatbush. And um, she's working at the height of the AIDS crisis. So she starts at St. Vincent's Hospital and then ends up at Kings County. Um, So she has been burnt out Mm -hmm. by that work. Um, St. Vincent's was ground zero for the AIDS crisis in the late 80s. Um, And she basically is sent into a tailspin and a depression by the death of one of her patients. Um, And so she's been on on edge for a few years um, and she finally decides to send her girls home because she really can't take care of them anymore. I think originally Avril thinks, okay, I'll send back, send for them, um, but that's not to be. Wow. So this is, I guess, eventually a, a real like legal change of custody. You know, just one, oh, yeah. one day they, they realize that this situation is just permanent. What's that realization like? Hard. <laughs> um, the hardest things to write in this book were like, I think it's not a spoiler, actually, because the blurbs of the book actually suggest that their mother dies and their father comes Mm. back with some nefarious intentions to collect them. So all the big things are clear, but there are still lots of twists and turns in the book. I think it's a page turner. Um, But so I didn't deal much with the actual legal question of custody. Mm -hmm. Now that you're saying that, I'm like, that would have uh, created a whole other (laughs) wrench in here (laughs) because I never really deal with how um, their grandmother just takes them Mm -hmm. (laughs) and how they just disappear from New York and never show back up again. Um, People have asked if I'm going to write a sequel and I imagine if I were going to, that would be an interesting place to start right. from like the missing person the case. missing person's case like right. yeah. what happens to these girls Dion's boyfriend is like I've been waiting <laughs> <laughs> he's not waiting for her <laughs> she'd like to think so but I don't think she is She's um but yeah, so it was it was fun, a fun fun book to write, even as there were some really difficult moments. So the mother c- kills herself, and for mm. years, when I was writing this book, I had three words: insert death scene, um, because I knew that I needed to write not just the story of how Avril dies, but the story of how their grandmother tells the girls of of. Um, their mother's death and I just didn't want to Mm -hmm. um, because I was scared of it I don't know what I thought would happen if I wrote about it Um, but anyway once I got over that it allowed me to write the rest of the book like you can't write um, the rest of the book without writing the central um, climactic event and so eventually I moved through it um, and I think it was worth it slash necessary Um, but it was certainly difficult to write those scenes so tell us about Barbados. I mean, what 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 do the girls experience there? Describe it. Describe the island to us. I've been there before. I was, oh, you it was have. a long yeah yeah a long time ago. Very cool. Um, and I really liked it. I had a great time there. Um, but but describe to us the island and maybe what made you decide to 
place it in Barbados? So this is an interesting question, actually, because my parents are from um, Antigua, Barbados, and Jamaica, and I've spent time in all those places. And Barbados is actually the place I'd spent the least time in. So I'd spent a couple summers when I was young, but I actually spent the majority of my summers in Antigua with my father's family. So like nine cousins and lots of aunts and uncles. Um, And I certainly draw from both of those experiences when I was writing the book. I chose to set the book in Barbados in part because it was challenging for me because I knew that if I went to Antigua, my um, my aunts and uncles would pick me up from the airport and everything would be easy. And I just knew that there would be an ease um, to that experience that I think would not make for such good writing. Um, Ah. And so... You know, my dad was like, why are you setting this in Barbados? You don't know anything about Barbados. <laughs> and for me, it was an opportunity to learn, um, to learn the language, um, to learn more about the food and the culture. So I actually spent a summer between my two years at the IR Writers Workshop there. So my job was to research in the afternoons and write a full draft, a full terrible draft in the morning. Mm. Um, saying terrible allowed me to actually step, step up <laughs> to the plate because the expectations were low. Um, and so, yeah. So I chose to set it because I set it in Barbados because I felt that I would learn something in the process. So it was exciting for me that there was an opportunity to learn something new. And also because I thought some good writing would come out of the discomfort of writing about a place I didn't know as much about. So describe just the island where they are. Yeah. So Barbados is an island in the Caribbean. Um, It's very much an Anglophile place. So um, I think Barbados actually looks less to the United States than to Britain as um, their former colonial power. Um, there was a funny moment when I was in the post office in Barbados and there was a postage stamp with the queen. Who's the people who got married? The Prince Charles and Kate. uh, Um, yeah. Those people. Okay, clearly we none of oh, us care is, about the royal family. No, this family. is terrible. I'm, I'm, I'm half English, and I should know. It's William and Kate. Yeah. William and Kate. Yes. So anyway, I just thought it was hilarious that there was a postage stamp. A Barbadian stamp. postage stamp. Yeah, I think it That's must have funny. been a British postage stamp for sale in Barbados. But I was just like, huh. It just yeah. kind of... Uh, clarified for me how much of a connection there still was between Barbados and the UK. Um, So it's a small place. Um, Most of it, I would say, is highly populated on the south coast. So if you were visiting as a tourist, that's probably where you spent most of your time. And then you might, if you were a surfer, go up to the east coast because there's really rad surfing on the east coast and also a really beautiful um, set of beaches and rocks at Bathsheba. So the south coast beach are pretty chill and relaxing and then the east coast beaches are more um rough okay now i've done the tourist thing yeah um in terms of what's actually happening in people's lives um the barbados i described in 1989 is really different from the barbados of now um so the this is a very rural community that i describe in this book um you know they're milking goats and milking cows um they're making clothes from scratch it's just not 2015 i would say that um 2015 barbados is really industrialized Hmm. and right now um going through intense economic struggle so um there are workers government workers who haven't been paid in months a lot of people are struggling to find work um so it's a much different place and much more complex than i think what tourists see when they come and one of the joys of writing this book actually was to um 
introduce some gradations to the story about the Caribbean that we get told. Mm -hmm. So I think there's like a lot of land of sun and sea um, promotion of the Caribbean. And I wanted to introduce a more complex narrative that was centered on actual Caribbean people in a Caribbean place, um, experiencing deep family strife and struggle, but still coming out on the other side of that. I felt that that was a... um, a necessary contribution to the story mm. of of that place for people in America and elsewhere who mostly have experienced the place as tourists. No, that makes a lot of sense. And why 1989? Um, you know, that started from a personal reason. So I spent those summers that I spent in Barbados and Antigua were mostly in the 80s and 90s. And mm-hmm. so I wanted to write about a Caribbean that felt familiar to me. So I, I didn't want to go ham and start writing about a time period that I didn't feel comfortable with. Um, And so that was the original reason. But as I started to research more, I started to introduce some other historical elements, the AIDS crisis, um, thinking about kind of black political power in um, the late 80s and Mm -hmm. early 90s in New York City. That doesn't actually end up much in the novel, but I certainly was reading about it and thinking about it as I was working on the book. Um, So I would say that it began from a personal place in terms of wanting to set the book during a time that I felt familiar with. And then as I started working on the eight or nine drafts that came after the first one, I had a chance to layer in some of those politics. And you also touch on some very sensitive topics in the book, mental illness, adolescent sexual awakening. How did you juggle all of that? Yeah, I mean, this book is funny and very dark. <laughs> mm. um, so I, I, one of my grandmother's friends, my grandmother died uh, last year, and her, my grandmother's best friend of, I don't even know, maybe 60 or 70 years to me, um, said to me, life is full of rain and sun, because I was really, really down about Granny's death, and I kind of was railing against the world. And she said, you know, she was in her 80s, and she lived a good long life, and life is full of rain and sun. And so that was actually a really good and important thing I try to remind myself of anytime I want to shy away from writing dark things, because I think I want to write books that are true to people's experience, which is complexity, strife, struggle, mm-hmm difficulty. Um, So there were a number of difficult topics that this book addresses, suicide, sexuality, mental illness. Um, I felt that um, there was a need for a conversation, a deep and rich conversation around mental illness in Caribbean communities. Um, I felt that fiction was actually a really great place to do that. Um, People find it easier to read about people who are not them and then they don't Mm -hmm. feel so much on the spot. And so I felt that fiction was actually a great place to write a character who was struggling with something and not um, to lean so hard on diagnosis or lean so hard on um, even writing from Avril's perspective, but thinking about what does it mean to be in a family where someone's really sick and sick in a way um, that has so much stigma attached to it. Um, In terms of adolescent sexuality, I kind of felt that any teenager or lots of teenagers deal with this stuff. Mm -hmm. And so... Dion was at a perfect age to work through some of those things. Sure. Um, Phaedra even has like a little love affair <laughs> with her little best friend that summer. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I wanted to, hers is way, way more tame and like 10 year old. Uh, holding hands. Holding hands and first kiss and that kind of stuff. Um, but I wanted to write about both, about sexuality from the experience of all those girls, or both girls rather. So throughout the novel, do either, I'm, I'm especially thinking of the older uh, uh, Dion, uh, do they then start questioning who they are? 
Oh yeah, I mean, this is certainly a novel transformation. And, and which and and who that you know who you know where do they identify? I you know I think that at the end of the novel they're still not sure yeah. they're still figuring Great. it out but there's yep. so much change and transformation that happens in this novel from day one to the end I would say Dion even in the end has kind of resi- resigned herself to being in Barbados and has actually mm. found some things to like about the place right <laughs> which didn't even seem possible on page one um, and I think Phaedra who is originally very much an outsider in this community finally has some friends um, mm-hmm. and she kind of ends the book feeling connected to Barbados but maybe with less of the everything's going to be great um, attitude that she has throughout the rest of the book even some of her sunshine gets uh, complicated throughout that so where is Bird Hill and what is the star side of it? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, Bird Hill is an actual place in Barbados. It's where my grandmother lived um, before she passed. It's and a town or an it's, area? It's a, so it's a neighborhood inside of Haggett Hall, which is a community inside of St. Michael, which is a parish in Barbados. Mm. So uh, maybe that makes sense uh, yeah. to you. If not, don't worry about right. it. Um, but so uh, there's a, the fi- the actual place of Bird Hill, which is actually pretty urban. Mm-hmm. And then there's the fictional place of Bird Hill in this um, book, which really reflects what my grandmother's neighborhood in Bird Hill was like in 89. Mm-hmm. Um, and also less what it was like than what I remember it to be like. Right. So I remember going back um, for her funeral last summer or last winter and um everything looks so much smaller than it did mm-hmm. the way that when you go back to a place as a, as a child, it just feels different. So there is the actual bird Hill street sign. Um, but I remember there's a, the, the church in this um, book is kind of modeled on my grandmother's church, Antioch in bird Hill. And in the book, it's at the top of a very big Hill. And in real life, it's like up a couple stairs. <laughs> <laughs> but when I was a kid, it felt so big yeah, and right. so far up, but I was a lot little then and so it's been fun actually to work on this book because it makes me um, confront some of those things like what's my actual memory and what is the actual place so I would say the the bird hill that shows up in this book is kind of a mashup of real life and a lot of my imagination the star side is this hiding place where these kids get into trouble um so they make out basically in the cemetery behind the church um and so starside is what dion's boyfriend says he says let's call this our special place Mm -hmm. in the way that teenage boys do to try and convince you to do all manner of things (laughs) um and so dion's like okay um (laughs) this is towards the beginning of the book she gets a lot more um a little wiser a little wiser as the book goes on she loses some of her you would think as a Brooklyn girl that she would be kind of tougher, but she's oh, no. not as I, smart or tough as she thinks she right. is. I grew up with Brooklyn kids. We were not as smart and tough as we thought we were. Yeah, but that's the joy of being a teenager is thinking right. you know more than you do. That's so true. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. 
Welcome back. We're talking with Naomi Jackson, author of The Star Side of Bird Hill, uh, who's just uh, telling us about these wonderful half-remembered, half-created, half-real places in Barbados. Um, so you two were born and raised in New York. What do you think it would have been like for you if you had gone on one of those trips to Barbados or to Antigua and just never been called home? I have no idea. I really don't know. Um, and in fact, one of the things that's been interesting when people say, are you going to keep hanging out with these girls? Like, will you write another book from their perspective? I feel like I can't because I had never actually spent time as a teenager um, in Barbados for an extended period of time. And I think in order to understand, you know, what going to school was like, what making friends was like, how parents parented their kids, all those kinds of things I really don't understand. And what I do understand is the experience of having a West Indian grandmother who's going to lay down the law um, and also kind of love you in a kind, cruel way, in right. the way that, Tough love. that Hyacinth does in this book. Um, so, I mean, I think the what if question I talked about before. So my parents, you know, when we were misbehaving would say, you mess up and we'll send you back to the Caribbean. And so oh, it, was, really? it was certainly a, wow. a threat. Um, but I mean, this is not to make my parents seem hardcore. Every West Indian parent said yeah. this to their kids. And mm-hmm. occasionally it would happen. Like your friend would be messing up and then all of a sudden they wouldn't come back to school. Like they'd go to Guyana or go to Trinidad or go to Barbados and they wouldn't come back. It wasn't a lot of kids, but it did happen. And so it really kept us all in check. (laughs) Oh, wow. Um, I think now that I'm older and now that I've spent some more time in the Caribbean as an adult, I see that less as a punishment or a sentence than as an opportunity to just experience something different. So I went to college with a whole bunch of kids from Trinidad and Jamaica who had interesting experiences. Mm -hmm. And so, and I've been back, I was just in Trinidad for the Bocas Literary Festival in April. So I actually don't think of the Caribbean anymore as a place to be banished to. I think of it as a very rich and interesting place on its own grounds, not a place that is just in relationship to my experience as a Caribbean American. American kid. And that I think is the, um, one of actually the gifts of writing this book was going to Barbados, making friends with, um, kids who were young people. I wasn't a kid. I was in my thirties when I went back. So making, um, friends with adults who were creatives, filmmakers, um, you know, mm-hmm. visual artists, the cover artist um, for this book is actually someone I met when I was in Barbados there. Oh, Neat. And so I think that that made me, have a more mature understanding and a more um, a less American centric understanding of the Caribbean. So you mentioned that the summer that you spent in Barbados was in between two years at the Iowa Writers Workshop, and you also uh, went to the University of Cape Town and got a master's in creative writing. What led you to those particular places? Um, so. Hmm. The Cape Town story is probably the funnier one. So I was supposed to go and do a master's in historical studies. I was going to do research about the history of a very small number of Caribbean people who had left the Caribbean in the late uh, 19th century to work on these merchant marine ships. So there was a big uh, sugarcane shortage and a hurricane and it sent people out. And so some people stopped in London, mostly men, and then they moved on to Cape Town, South Africa. And so in District 6, which is a colored community, or was a historically colored community in Cape Town, um, there were a lot of people who were the children, the descendants of those people. And so I was going to go do research on that. And then I got there and someone had submitted a dissertation on exactly the same thing, like literally the week before. (laughs) And so I was like, I guess I'm not going to do that. Um, But I I was in my early 20s 
and you know how you like obsess with something one day and then the next day you're like who what I don't know what that's about and so in the meantime I had started writing more seriously and I was like I'm gonna see if the people in the creative writing program will let me do the creative writing program and they did so I just switched programs and I ended up writing like a little short story collection as my thesis or dissertation there and then um Iowa I had applied to three to Iowa three times before I got in so I was working full-time for about 10 right. years and kind of every few years I would make different uh efforts towards yeah. applying there the last time I applied to 11 schools including Iowa and I got into three um and so Iowa was about hmm six years after Cape Town. So I spent a significant amount of time working and then I went back to grad school to be at the writer's workshop. But yeah, um, Brooklyn, Barbados, Iowa city could not be more (laughs) or even Cape Town could not be more different places. I was just going to say, yeah. Yeah. But I I think being in each of those places really has made me a better writer because I, I think what it's given me kind of like what I was talking about before in terms of changing an American centric uh, relationship to the Caribbean is it's changed my viewpoint on the world. So I think I have more empathy. Um, I certainly have a little bit more understanding of the world than if I had just done all my education here in, in the States. There's been a strong recent push for publishing books by authors of color about characters of color, but change happens kind of slowly. So do you have any advice for writers who are just starting out, maybe um, for for breaking in or you know, staying strong while they wait to break in the oh, way you waited those years? Yeah, keep writing. I mean, um, someone the other day said, I'm a overnight success story that was 10 years in the making. <laughs> and I certainly relate to that. I mean, yeah. I, like I was saying before, I work for so many years and just spent my weekends and um, nights and vacations were all at residencies, you know, on Saturday mornings, I would sit down and apply to stuff. So I mean, I think that having a lot of stamina for hard work and um, cultivating um, a capacity to take in rejection, but not make it personal, I think is actually an essential skill, you have to learn how to be rejected gracefully. And um, also, I I actually suggest taking rejection like men do, (laughs) generally, which is to say, thank you for the feedback. Can I send you something else? Right. Um, And so... That's so so true. Yeah. So so for writers who... Jeez, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. (laughs) yeah. There's a Vita report about about this particular thing, about how men relate to rejection and how women take it. Right. Um, And so I guess my, my overall advice is just do your work and have cultivate endurance and stamina and persistence like that's how you get ahead in 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 the game and um i would also suggest i was just teaching um at the iowa writers um iowa summer writing festival and i don't talk to my students about the business of publishing until they've actually finished something so i think that if you're going to be about any business be about the business of um, cultivating opportunities for yourself that will advance your work um, but thinking too much about publishing and agents and all the stuff before you finished your work, I think is a, the road to disappointment. And it definitely does make it an additional challenge. Like in your head, you're already having that struggle. Yeah, I'm like, that struggle will show up. Don't invite it in early. (laughs) Struggle with the characters, (laughs) struggle with the work, struggle with your writing, struggle with um, figuring out how to support your, get your community of support, your partners, your family, your friends on board around your life as a writer. Do that struggle. Don't invite other struggle before it's even there. 
That makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. And what are you working on now, other than promoting this book? You say you just did a, a big tour to... Yeah, yeah. Um, so you guys are getting me when I'm in New York City and feeling good about being home, which is a good time <laughs> to be talking to me. Oh, good. Um, but although I've had a really fantastic um, tour to Iowa, all around the Martha's Vineyard and Massachusetts, and this past week to Philly and to D.C. Um, so I'm really grateful for all the people who came out and for the privilege of being able to promote my book full time. It's not a small thing to be able to dedicate your life in this way to that. Yeah, that's true. That's it's great. huge. Yeah. I, I don't I don't take it for granted that I can do this. Right. Um, and so in terms of my next project, I'm working on a couple things. I have a novel that's called Behind God's Back. That's the tentative title. And it's a multi-generational family saga set in New York about a Caribbean American family that does come to America. Um, and it's uh, set in the early 1930s up to the, the mm. 2000s. So it's a much bigger scope than the two months that I spend with right. these girls um, in the star side of Bird Hill. And I'm also working on a screenplay adaptation of one of my short stories, Ladies. So, yeah. Nice. Wait, how did the screenplay adaptation come out, come about? Did that just... It of... actually came out from my summer I spent in Barbados. Oh, okay. Yeah. So um, one of the people who I met when I was down there was a filmmaker. Her name's Lisa Harewood, and she's based in Barbados. And she is a fan of my work. I kind of, I like to call her my Bayesian tiger mom. Um, and so um, she was really excited about a couple of the projects I was working on. But one of the projects she really loved is a short story called Ladies. It's set at a teacher's college in Jamaica in the 70s and in Brooklyn. It's a love story about two women who fall in love in um, Jamaica and then are reunited in Brooklyn. And so Lisa loved the story and really wanted to move forward with a screenplay adaptation and a film version, either a short or feature. We're still figuring it out. Um, but yeah, that was one of the gifts that came out of that time. She was on um, on doing location scouting for her first a short film and so I would ride around Barbados in Lisa's car I was her shotgun buddy for all a lot of those rides and that's where I really figured out a lot about the landscape of Barbados and now we have a film project out of it Wow, that's so exciting. Mm-hmm. What a what a great collaborative opportunity. Yeah, I got lucky. I got lucky. <laughs> and you mentioned finding your cover artist there too. Have there been other authors, artists, creative folks who you've kind of collaborated with? Yeah, I just wrote about um about this for poets and writers. Um so they asked me to write something for their like writers recommend series and I was like, What do I say? Use a good pen. Um <laughs> call- be good about rejection and that's like actually collaborating with visual artists because um one of the things that has i think really sold this book is the cover it's fantastic it's dynamic it's colorful um i think it's the kind of thing that people walk into the store and they're like they want to pick it up and say Mm. what's this and so um the cover artist's name is sheena rose and she'll actually be with me tomorrow at or saturday at the brooklyn museum um doing a target for saturday's book club program at the brooklyn museum so that'll be fun and sheena is actually in town. She just got back from Barbados, so she's going to talk a little bit during that event about the book cover. Um, so Sheena's one of the most obvious collaborations, Lisa Harewood, for this film project. Um, a friend of mine's name is Wura Natasha Gunji, and she's a visual artist. Um, I was in one of her performance pieces called 100 Black Women, 100 Actions um, in Austin. Um, a friend of mine, Simone Lee, did the Creative Time Project called the Free People's Medical Clinic. I don't know if you guys got it, had a chance to see it, but it was in Beth Die all the series of lots of amazing events last fall. So I wrote for the Waiting Room magazine about hmm. actually mental illness and Caribbean communities, uh-huh. kind of the same same stuff, but from a different right. perspective. So. 
I heart visual artists. My partner is a photographer. She's the one who did my headshot um, and is, takes all my photographs. Um, and so I think I even have that. I just think about visual art, I think, more than the average right. bear. Um, it's part of my home life um, right. and part of my work life now. But thanks for asking. Yeah, absolutely. That that sounds like just a wonderful set of opportunities. Yeah. We've been talking with Naomi Jackson, and you can find her book, The Star Side of Bird Hill, in stores right now. Naomi, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Rose Fox recaps the Romance Writers of America conference. Stay tuned. I'm Eric Burns, the author of 1920, the year that made the decade roar. And you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors, and I happen to be one of those, and it's been a while since Mark and I interviewed each other. <laughs> so uh, I, I figured that I would come on and uh, talk a little bit about the Romance Writers of America conference. Well, which Rose, I'm really happy to, to have you on the show. Oh, well, thanks, Mark. It's great to be here. <laughs> so it sounded like you had a great time at this uh, conference. You know, I had a good time. Okay. I, I, I I don't know that I'd say I had a great time. It was a really interesting thing. It's been four years since RWA was in New York. It moves mm. around a lot. It's a big, big conference. It's right. thousands of people. Uh, romance is a big industry. And I think that a lot of folks outside of it don't kind of realize just how big it is. But um, I think it's four or 5,000 people at this annual conference wow. every year. And writers, 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 they're all yeah. like writers are really serious about doing this. And the conference is not inexpensive um, so these are people who are very invested in their careers right uh, who, you know, often who scrape and save uh, to be able to come to RWA every year and uh, that's part of why it moves to different locales so that yeah. those of us who are in New York for example can come to it locally every few years and I know you have kind of likened this to the to your own BEA. This is your time with the yeah, events, uh, the parties, the the panels, parties. the everything. The, the everything. Um, there's there's a lot that goes on, and it is very much similar to BEA for right. me. Is that uh, I meet with a lot of publishers, and publishers are also traveling to this. The kind of their once a year thing. There are a lot of small presses run out of places outside of New York and. Uh, a lot of independent authors also self-publishing authors right. who all come in and, and gather for this. And it's very, very, very social for a lot of these ladies. So my sense of it after having kind of watched the industry and been part of the industry for a while is that a lot of these authors are women who had kids, um, you know, had some other career. And at some point when their kids were kind of old enough to play unsupervised, they thought, why don't I just write a romance novel? And, you know, or they just started writing. They didn't even know what they were writing or they read a novel that inspired them. They had some story in mind. And so these are, you know, authors with families. Um, they're huge contingents from the Midwest, from the South. And uh, for them, this is like their vacation mm -hmm. every year. I mean, they might go somewhere with their families also. Oh, wow. But uh, when they come to RWA, they want to party. <laughs> and so wow. like 
dancing oh, all yeah, dancing yeah. all night and, no. <laughs> and drinking a lot and uh you know every publisher throws a cocktail party for their authors mm. and so the authors come and sort of mingle at these parties and hang out with agents right. and you know they meet their publicists who they haven't met and stuff like that uh, i did five cocktail parties in one night which i think is a an rwa record for me <laughs> and, and you know as someone who doesn't drink alcohol that is not as disastrous sounding as, as right, it would be right, it, right 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 um, but it was um it was it was quite a thing and uh the the big event is that harlequin books every year throws an enormous party they fly in a dj who uh, as legend has it was just the dj they hired for some party one year when the RWA was in San Francisco and they like him so much they keep him so they just fly him from San Francisco to wherever the party is this year what and a great job for the DJ yeah well he loves it he's just like yeah ladies let's go and then he plays it's raining men and like the dance floor fills <laughs> fills up it's just it's it's a spectacular sight so this this year the Harlequin party was at the, the Waldorf Astoria um, and it's a black and white ball so you have to wear black and white and, yeah um, just everybody in these amazing dresses and suits and outfits and uh, it was it was pretty incredible. So the yeah. social side of it is is phenomenal. That yeah. um, that's a really big uh, attendance. Those are really big attendance numbers. I think considering yeah. that BEA is what twenty thousand. Yeah, I no, mean, this, this is this a quarter. Is, it's it's yeah. and it's just for romance. And it's just for romance. Yeah, it's yeah. huge. Yeah. and um, and also one of the big events at RWA is a signing to benefit literacy causes. So. Mm. Um, authors bring you know, copies of their books and uh, you know, donate those to the cause. And uh, readers come to the signing. They'll go to a, an author they like and they'll say, "Oh, oh, you know, I really want this book of yours." The author will sign it, and then the reader will quote unquote buy it. But their money is a donation that goes to a literacy right. foundation, and right. uh, so it raises a lot of money every yeah. year. And uh, you know, they fill a ballroom. I mean, it's just like this ballroom, which just tables and tables, rows and rows and rows of people in alphabetical order right. uh, with a few sort of end cap tables for yeah, the people yeah. with really long signing lines. So um, I was there toward the tail end of it. It was so packed. It was crammed. It was like being in Grand Central at 5 p.m. Uh, you know, just all these people running around. Uh, and a lot of I, I noticed, and a lot of other people were commenting on this: a really diverse crowd of readers, uh, you know, ev every age, every ethnicity. Uh, you know, really, really nice to see so many people there reading romance. So I was going to ask you about that. I mean, is this something that's changed uh, for romance uh, readers and maybe romance writers? I, I have I, in my mind, I have this that this feeling that most romance writers are, as you said, you know, maybe. Um, middle-aged white women uh, right. and maybe the readership is the same but also know there is a growing number of african-american romance um and some romance uh written by men yeah uh, there, so, there were in fact so, men there so so there, <laughs> not many <laughs> right, but right, there were right, yeah um i actually i was i was disappointed i was looking around for one of my favorite male romance authors ml buckman and i, I didn't see him uh, there i was yeah. kind of bummed but um yeah, it's. Uh, I think it is changing. You know, it, there's been a lot of discussion on Twitter about this because, uh, in part, because uh, Suleika Snyder, who's an author, posted a blog post about her two RWAs, and one was this great, supportive, wonderful time, and the other was uh, feeling like there's still so much 
uh, headway to be made for and in the in the pursuit of genuinely diverse romance. So, for example, there was a panel on LGBTQ mm. romance. Um, there were a couple of panels, I think, on uh, racial diversity, including one that has the most amazing, amazing handout, um, which is. Uh, it's got the one stock photo cover of the the interracial couple, and they're like, "This is the most used stock photo in all of right. romance because no one ever bothered to take a second one of a white man and a black woman together. We just use this one on book covers over and over and over." Um, and uh, you know, just great do's and don'ts for writing multicultural romance. But there's still a long way to go. There's still a lot of Segregation, I would say, uh, to use a slightly loaded word, but um, I saw a lot of social segregation at the parties. It was like uh, that book where all the black kids sitting together in the cafeteria. It was it was like that. Um, you saw a lot of uh, kind of de facto racial divisions and who sat with whom. Uh, there are still imprints that are dedicated to publishing African-American romance, which can be great. It can be really supportive. It can tell readers where to look for the books that they want to read. But it can also mean that if, for example, you write a Regency romance, uh, a historical romance with a character who's of African descent, uh, the publishers who usually publish Regency romance might not want to look at it. They might say, oh, well, that's you know a black romance. Right. You should put that in the right. black romance category, even though it's not anything like uh, a present-day urban right. black romance. You know, like they're two totally different worlds. Oh, interesting, yeah. So um, we, still have, we still have a long way to go. It's interesting watching these things shift and change. And, I mean, as I said, there is an LGBTQ panel but um i also felt uh, like a little bit of a sore thumb there with my buzzed hair and and my suit you know um I, one of the very few kind of openly queer people mm -hmm. at the conference um there is a, a rainbow chapter of rwa for uh, networking among authors of lgbt romances but uh it's still kind of uh, we're still a very small minority right. in what is an overwhelmingly heterosexual uh, world. Mm -hmm. But um, a, a notable thing is that uh, the awards, the Rita Awards, are reflecting a lot of where the the culture is now currently among romance writers. So on the one hand, there was a book. What, yeah, tell us about the Rita Awards. Yeah, so the Rita Awards are huge, huge, huge. These are the Oscars of romance. It's a black tie affair. Everybody gets dressed up in their most fabulous gowns. Um, you see some really splendid outfits. It's just like one big red carpet. And um, there's a, a big award presentation this year. They had uh, a lot of different authors contribute chapters to a sort of hilarious parody romance uh you know so there's uh a fireman but he's a vampire and you know it's it's uh, <laughs> it, it it sort of poked very affectionate fun and right. a lot of romance subgenres uh and the award ballot had some controversy uh from a couple different directions mm -hmm. so this year there is an erotic romance award this is a relatively new thing uh, there's 
been some tension, I guess, between the more conservative side of romance and the more progressive side of romance, I suppose. But um, adding a, an erotic romance category was kind of a big deal. And this year it was won by The Saint by Tiffany Rice, mm-hmm. uh, which is actually a queer erotic romance. Uh, and uh, there's, uh, it, it was it was amazing watching Tiffany give her speech. She's a friend of mine. So I was like, yeah, yeah, (laughs) Tiffany. But um, she, she got very teary eyed and just said, you know, thank, thank you for including this award. You know, like that's a erotic romance is huge, huge. It's like from a publishing side of things, there's a lot of money in it. There are a lot of books, but um, at the same time, uh, it's been sort of slow to get recognition as actual, Romance did, from the romance community. Did a lot of this come about or a momentum start building after Fifty Shades of Grey or had it already been building before that? It had already been building before that. I mean, right. people have been writing erotic romance for a really long time. Right, and, right. And uh, the difference with Fifty Shades, I think, was that you just couldn't ignore it anymore. Right. You couldn't right. pretend it was some tiny little minority of people who were writing their thinly veiled fan fiction or whatever. Like, right. you had to admit that this was a real yeah, yeah. publishing phenomenon and it, it deserved recognition. Recognition, mm-hmm. uh, but there have been people pushing for that for a very, very long time. Uh, and then the other side of the Rita Awards, uh, and a thing that people have been mostly talking about since the awards were given, now that we know that this book did not win in either of the categories it was in, uh, was a, a romance novel that's set in a Nazi concentration camp that is a romance between the man running the camp and a half Jewish woman who is his secretary who can't reveal that she's Jewish or she'll be killed. And um, there's been a lot of really serious discussion about how did this book get on this list? And it's labeled as a Christian inspirational romance, which is sort of an additional layer of discomfort. um, And, and the thing that I keep coming back to personally is that it's on there. It, it was on the shortlist for best first novel and best inspirational novel um, because a lot of people thought it should be there because a right. lot of people in this community put it forward as an award worthy book. And uh, from the reviews I've read, the writing itself is very good now, mm. high quality writing, but the concept right. is uh, to me at least repugnant. So um, you know, there's just a lot of churn going on around ideas of identity and who, whose perspective is considered. And, uh, you know, it's, it's been a long time since I felt weird for being a Jewish person in publishing. There's a lot of us, you know, but, um, but yeah, with that book on the ballot, I sort of kept looking over my shoulder. <laughs> uh, nobody asked me whether I had horns, though. So we uh, we are making progress as a society. No, I, it's it's um it was just it was just a strange sort of layer on the experience. Right, and right. RWA is so feminist, and it's a wonderful place mm-hmm. to to be a woman and surrounded by other women. And the first time I went to RWA, I was just bowled over by its feminist nature. And now. Going back, this is my first RWA since coming out as transgender, and that was also right. different. Um, and just, I think there was, I didn't, I was not on the receiving end of any overt bigotry of any kind, mm. but there were just a lot of people who were sort of, I think, confused by me. Yeah. And um, and so with again, or without the horns, with or without the yeah. horns, yeah. Well, they wouldn't have matched my suit. All right. <laughs> Fashion first, Mark. Fashion first. So, um, 
so so yeah it it was just it was a it was a sort of strangely mixed experience for me but i got to see a lot of wonderful people and a lot of wonderful authors and there were some really great panel panel conversations it's so business focused mm. which is uh, a really nice change from yeah. the science fiction circles that i hang out in where we we do a lot of sort of intellectual analytical stuff about the works themselves right these were panels on like how to write when you're depressed um, wow. you know and uh yeah. what what to do if your book sags in the middle and like lots of real craft right. conversations and business conversations and as you were saying this is a, a conference that many writers come to plan their vacations around. So they're not only there to, to see what books are coming out uh, as fans, but also to see how they can better their craft. Yeah. Yeah, there yeah. are pitch sessions. There's right. there's a big focus on networking with other yep. authors, yeah. and romance in general has this huge tradition of authors supporting one another. Um, every, everybody is just really. Uh, really kind in a lot of ways to up and coming writers. You'll see people uh, at particular publishing houses form these almost families where the more established authors will take the younger ones under their wings and show them the ropes and, um, and, and boost their books. And, you know, no, no romance novel comes out without half a dozen blurbs on it. Right. From, yeah, yeah. from often from uh, people at your publishing house are like, yeah, well, you know, other more established authors blurb my books and now I'll blurb your books. Right. And, right. Um, and I don't mean to suggest that any of those are insincere. I'm sure that all of these authors would, you know, would not write a blurb that they didn't believe yeah, it's in. It's just but, a, a tight world. Yeah. It's, it's a very close knit world yeah. and um, being able to network online uh, is also making a, a big difference. Yeah. So um, I think it'll be interesting to see where RWA goes from here, but right. uh, definitely the impression that I got of it was an industry in flux, mm -hmm. um, trying to deal with mainstreaming of romance and of erotic romance and uh, sort of continue building community while figuring out what those community mores yeah. are now. Wow. Well, Rose, what a wonderful, I'm really thoughtful look into the uh, RWA. I mean, I, I'm really glad to hear about all these. I mean, you were really, you were able to just point out all the nuances of what seems to be, lot. yeah, well, what seems <clears throat> to be, you just think romance writers. I mean, and, and I think people have connotations about it, you know, so, you know, thoughts about, oh, romance writers, it's just one thing but right but no it's, no it's, it's it, it really is evolving it's really evolving yeah. it's a very diverse group romance itself is such a broad genre yeah. i mean it covers everything from you know paranormal romance to outer space romance to gay historicals right. which are growing it's mm -hmm. really interesting to see um people sort of bringing out these stories of same-sex love in the past, whether in a sort of idealized way where you never really address that it might yeah. not have been safe or it was taboo, um, or in a very realistic way where it's, you know, the two of us against the odds. And, uh, you know, it's, it's really shifting and changing in some incredible ways. Yeah. Well, I look forward to uh, talking with you again four years from now when it's back in New York. <laughs> I don't I don't know actually when it'll be back. It's in San Diego yeah. next okay, year, and I'm right. not going to San Diego in July. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, hopefully it will be back in New York in a few years, and I'll be able to get a, a sort of updated look at it. Well, thank you, Rose. And now a final word from our sponsors. 
Hi, this is Michael J. Martinez, author of The Venusian Gambit. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join me next week for an interview with Anil Anantaswamy, who's the author of The Man Who Wasn't There. And we'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcast on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 